Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 516 of the podcast and it is Saturday the 14th of November 2020 as I record this in a very big uh, rainstorm outside here in Bath. So today I'm talking to Megla Torre about creating video for book marketing and YouTube for authors. But we also discuss Meg's experience in the publishing industry and multiple streams of income. Meg has some income streams that even I don't, and I have so many. (laughs) So I learned about some new ones, which was great. So that's coming up in the interview. In publishing news, the whole ACX slash Audible situation has bubbled over this week (laughs) and they emailed the community apologising for some truly unacceptable wait times and they basically said that we are once again making new projects submitted to ACX that meet our audio submission requirements available to listeners within 30 business days and continue to adjust internal processes to make your projects available for sale even faster. Now they say this and apologised but But uh, of course, I've had a book there now over six months in their queue. And so I emailed them and quoted from their email. And I have not heard back yet, but they're well over 30 business days. And they can't tell me when my project will go through. So very interesting. We've also heard this has been, I've mentioned this before, there's been this thing going on about returns. And the letter said, in addition, we've heard from members of the ACX community who are concerned about Audible's overall return policy. While this customer benefit is for active members in good standing and suspicious activity is rare, we take your concerns very seriously and are actively reviewing the policy with this feedback under consideration. It's interesting, they're calling this a customer benefit, which is that customers can return an audiobook even if they listened to the whole thing and enjoyed it. And we don't get paid, basically, it counts as a return. What they have done is they've said to show our appreciation for the month of December 2020, we'll pay an additional 5% royalty on all sales of your ACX audiobooks. But of course, that means they actually have to be there. (laughs) Yes. So they have acknowledged the problem. So that's really good. Let's say that is excellent that they've acknowledged the problem. That doesn't mean it is fixed, but at least we have been heard. However, clearly this is not enough because last week the Alliance of Independent Authors revoked ACX as an approved self-publishing service until their ill-conceived audiobook refund policy is reversed. And I'll link to these various posts in the show notes, but they say in a Twitter a stream. Audible readers can now return audiobooks for a full refund up to a year after purchase, and the app even has a handy return book button, which means if you have an Audible subscription, you can basically have unlimited listens, but authors and narrators do not get paid. They also say, the Alliance says, Amazon's ACX.com 
claws back any lost revenue from the audiobook authors, adding possible illegality to injury. It won't tell authors how many returns are happening under this no quibble refund policy. And Susan May at susanmaywriter.net has an article about the detail of the returns policy with screenshots giving some evidence on this. Of course, this is all alleged, (laughs) although their refund policy, as they say in that email to all of us, does say this is a customer benefit, which it's a customer benefit, but we don't get paid. And that certainly was not in the original contract. (laughs) So I think this is not, I don't think this is going to change. I think that Audible needs to compete with the unlimited subscription models. But what they should be doing, of course, is renegotiating the contract so we get a micro payment. If they want to be an unlimited service, then we should get paid in the same way we get paid from the other subscription models, which is yes, you get paid a lot less, but you get paid for lessons. So if someone doesn't need to return something, uh, it's part of the unlimited. So I really think 2021 is going to be a big year in terms of a shakeup in audio. I think this is just the start of some of the stuff that's going to go on with Audible. and But the Alliance of Independent Authors essentially revoking their approved self-publishing service status is very interesting. I personally am now only using findawayvoices.com, even for Audible distribution. I originally, of course, when ACX first launched, they were the only option. So I went all in with ACX.com in around 2014 when they opened up to UK. Then a couple of years ago, when Findaway came along, what I was doing was putting my Audible books into ACX.com and going non-exclusive and then putting them into Findaway for the other markets. So I've been a sort of two two service approach for a couple of years. And now I'm going all in with Findaway Voices, which will still make my audiobooks available on Audible eventually. (laughs) But it does mean I can be on all the other services as well. And I was talking to Jonathan about this. We just went for a walk, luckily, before the storm arrived. And I was saying, this is, while I, because I've been in this space for so long, of course, I jump on whatever the latest thing is that I see an opportunity in. But that doesn't mean I can't change my mind. And as newer and better things come along for authors, I'm going to jump on those too. So what I would say is if you find a quote from me about something, check the date on that quote because things change or email me and say, do you still recommend this service? And if I still recommend a service, I will tell you. If I don't, I will tell you. But it's impossible to remove one's comments from history, (laughs) especially in this day and age. So what I would say is right now, my choice is purely find away voices. And I do think that 2021 is going to be a big year. The Alliance of Independent Authors also has a really good blog post this week on the ultimate guide to levelling up your author business. And I'm particularly interested in this as I've just printed out the first draft of Your Author Business Plan, the book, which I'll talk about in a minute. Anyway, this Alliance blog post is brilliant if you're slightly more advanced in your author career. So you have an author business and you're ready to level it up, whatever that means to you. And as Orna says in the post, if you want this life, so if you want 
an author business, you have to become skilled in three very different activities, writing, publishing and business. You have to fulfil the expectations of your readers and followers and you have to figure out how you're going to get properly paid and not find all the hours of every day consumed by work. And this is definitely the time of year to take a pause, um, have a look at what you're doing, what's working, what's not working, what do you love, what can you do more of, what do you hate but is necessary, so you might have to outsource that. What makes money? What is a financial drag? And this is where we actually do need to look at the numbers. You might feel, like I have this sometimes, I'm like, I feel that this book is doing quite well. And then I look at the numbers and I go, okay then, so it's not. (laughs) Or I really feel that this book is important and useful. So my public speaking, for example, for authors, creatives and other introverts, I think it's so useful. It really is really useful. But the very few and the very few people who buy it think it's very useful. But it's such a tiny market. That book is one of those books that I wrote and then redid. I what did I redid it last year and re-recorded the audio and everything. This year I literally can't remember. <laughs> This year's been so long, but it's one of those books that there's just no point in me advertising that book or doing anything to promote that book other than just have it there available for you if you're interested in public speaking. That's something that I can only know by looking at the data because I feel it's useful. The reviews are good, but it just doesn't sell very much. So yeah, really important to look at your growth potential around your business. As Orna says, it's in your product offerings, as in your books and your other services and products, your marketing, your reader service and retention. This process of selection, of deciding what we want to do more of and what we want to let go, what we want to delegate and what we want to delete what we want to elaborate and what we want to clarify is shaped by our passion and sense of purpose as a writer, our values as a person and our financial needs, goals and intentions. Your business will grow best if you give yourself time to think. Carve out time every week to put thought into your business, to consider your creative intentions and accomplishments, to list challenges, threats and opportunities and possible solutions. Meanwhile, books still need to be written and produced. Yeah, I think setting aside time every week is a bit much, but at least once a month (laughs) or uh, at least once a year. That's why I'm trying to get your author business plan out uh, before Christmas so that uh, you'll have that as a resource. And of course, there is already a course on that, a mini course at thecreativepen.com forward slash learn if you want some structure around your author business plan and the book version of it as I said I really want to have out before Christmas Uh, certainly an ebook and print on demand and the audio will obviously be a bit later So in my personal news, as I said, I've been working hard on your author business plan. And it's so funny because, of course, the process of turning a course into a book is you do get all the transcripts and use those as chapters. But then inevitably, a book is a very different product to a course. And it also... It's just a very different presentation style. Again, the audio is different to a podcast, is different to a course, is different to a book. And so I have ended up re writing a lot, thinking about how to put things that aren't so visual, because of course the course is very visual, but this is on the page. And also I think about the audio narration. So I have to be very careful how I phrase things and how I write things because I don't have a diagram to show in audio. So that's really the way I'm thinking about it now. 
I definitely think it is a challenge to turn a transcript into a book. Like those people who have a blog, you don't just take a podcast or a blog and just paste it into a book and publish it. That's not a book. So it's very important to me that this is a different product, that this is a complementary product, a useful product. And yeah, so anyway, (laughs) as ever, it's turning into more than I expected, but it will be coming. We are locked down. The weather is horrible. So what else have I got to do? (laughs) Tree of Life came back from my proofreader. So that is in finishing energy. So I've got I've been doing a first draft. I've got a printed first draft of a nonfiction book. And then Tree of Life came back. And with a proofreader, you're really hoping that there's not much. And of course, there wasn't. But a couple of the things that my proofreader, Wendy, picked up, I'm like, oh, she just, she always saves me. Even though, and I love ProWritingAid and I use ProWritingAid before I send it. But it's stuff that software will not pick up because it's more about meaning. And she even picked up an issue with some of my Portuguese (laughs) It was brilliant. So yeah, I absolutely, even though I love ProWritingAid, I still use uh, Proofreader after the final thing. And then I just fix those few things. So then maybe there were about about 15 across the whole book. So fix those and have sent Tree of Life to my pen friends, my ARC readers for my fiction uh, readers and for early reviews. And it's gone for print formatting. So I feel like I'm in the creative energy and the beginning energy of one book, although it's technically the middle energy because I now have a first draft and then I'm in the finishing energy for Tree of Life. So yeah, I feel quite good about that. That is out on the 9th of December in ebook and print and will be January 2021 for the audiobook. So that's uh, good. So basically been working hard here. And uh, thanks for your emails and tweets and comments this week. Liz Pearson Mann says, thanks so much for the networking episode. It's very timely as it's just what I'm thinking about at the moment. I like what you said about networking being about people, relationships, particularly with peers and about community. I'm thinking that real world relationships could become as important for me as being online. Yeah, absolutely. What else? Christopher Wills on YouTube said, loved the interview today. I am possibly the world's worst networker. I used to be shy, but a career in the military and teaching has kicked that out of me. So now I am a loner, but not an introvert. Dan sold a book to me from this great show. Yes, podcasting sells books, which is fantastic. And Sarah Louise, SL Novak writer on Twitter says, great episode. I went to the SPF show this year that was in London and met Joe Penn, Dan Parsons and Sasha Black. It was my first author event and I was so nervous. I shouldn't have worried. Everyone was so friendly. I'm not a natural networker and wish I'd read networking for authors before I went. So well done, Dan. You've definitely written a book that people want and very useful. And that's why I wanted Dan on the show like I really agree and I think I also think 2021 will be a great year for networking because those of us who want to get back out there will be back out there and we'll all be really friendly because we're desperate for some human contact <laughs> so as ever you can tweet me at the creative pen or leave a comment on the show notes or email me joanna at the let me know what you think about the show send me a picture of where you're listening in from and thanks to pictures this week from Sarah Nicholas too windy to worry about my hair in the driveway and also from Amy Chazari who sent me pictures listening in her swimming pool well in her pool spa pool that I bought with my indie publishing money (laughs) hell yeah which is fantastic really enjoyed that oh and Amy also says the great interview with Daniel and made me want to go to a conference and I cracked up with your Frankenfurter story (laughs) glad you enjoyed that (laughs) 
Okay, so today's show is sponsored by Kobo Writing Life, and I'll play a word from Tara and Steph in a minute. Now, I love Kobo Writing Life. I've been using them to publish direct to Kobo since it opened up to authors, and I also love my KWL dashboard country map. And I checked it again because it, it's always ticking up. And I have now sold books in 158 countries. Woohoo! Very exciting, and it's been a huge year for Kobo as ebook sales have exploded with a shift to digital purchasing during the pandemic. That is exciting, and、uh, Tara and Steph coming up. And of course, this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription, and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my patrons, and I should say my headspace. <laughs> My time and headspace. So thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. Thanks to new and returning patrons this week, as well as all the wonderful existing patrons, especially those of you who've been around for years. So new and returning this week: Jeff Elkins, Wayne J. Coshall, Andrew Plum, Matt, and A. L. Wardell. I really appreciate your support on Patreon. It demonstrates you find the show useful and want it to continue. You can support the show for just a couple of dollars or euros or pounds per month. Yes, it's multi-currency now, and you'll get the extra monthly Q and A audio, which went out over the weekend. I'm As I record this, I'm about to record that, so that will be out before this. And、uh, you get to ask your questions, and、uh, you'll get some sort of behind-the-scenes personal stuff. So you can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Here's a word from Kobo Writing Life, and then we'll get into the interview. Hi, I'm Stephanie, and I'm Tara, and we're from Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors, and our team of dedicated book lovers are always working hard to help authors reach new readers around the world. 2020 has been a tumultuous year for all, but if there's a positive to be found, it's that people are reading more than before. At Kobo, we've seen a significant spike in reading activity, an increase in some places from 80% to 200% compared to pre-pandemic numbers. As writers, your stories matter now more than ever before. At Kobo Writing Life, we want to help you easily and affordably market your book to Kobo readers, which is why we built a promotion tool that can be found right in the author dashboard. We update the available promotions on a weekly basis, so make sure you check back regularly. These promotions will get your books in prime spots on Kobo's store and in targeted emails to our global customer base. With people embracing digital reading at an accelerated rate this year, we want to give our authors an opportunity to let their books stand out. If you don't yet have access to the promotions tool, email the team at writinglife@kobo.com and we'll get you sorted. If you want to learn more about KWL, check the Kobo Writing Life podcast available wherever you get your podcasts, and find us on social. You can create your free account at kobo.com/writinglife. Happy writing! Megalator is a best-selling science fiction and fantasy author, YouTuber at iWriterly, speaker and blogger. She previously worked at a literary agency and has a background in magazine publishing, medical and technical writing, and journalism. Her latest book is *The Cyborg Tinkerer*. Welcome, Meg. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you on the show. So, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing and publishing. Yes, absolutely. So, like a lot of people, I've been writing since I was a kid. I always knew I wanted to write books, but I didn't actively start writing books until probably about ten years ago. After I'd been working in corporate for a few years as a journalist and technical writer, and eventually as a magazine editor, I applied for an internship at a literary agency, and I worked there for a few years and was eventually promoted from intern to literary agent apprentice, which At other ages, agencies. 
agencies is basically the equivalent of an associate agent in that you take on clients, you go on submission, you negotiate contracts and so forth. And while I was working at the agency, I was writing my own novels on the side and I started a YouTube channel. I actually started my YouTube channel because I saw so many writers making the same mistakes when querying. And I wanted to find a way to help educate writers so they had a quicker learning curve. And then eventually I left the agency due to personal reasons. And I kept on doing YouTube and writing my own books, which I guess leads to where I am today. Oh, that is great. And you said something I know everyone's ears have pricked up. You said you saw writers making the same mistakes when querying. Yeah. <laughs> so I know people want to know what those are now. Yes, absolutely. So when you're querying, usually you send a query letter, you're opening pages and a synopsis to a literary agent. Every single agent is different. And I think the biggest mistake that I saw writers making when they were trying to get a literary agent is that they did not read the submission guidelines. So maybe they would send a query letter and the first four chapters when the agent asked for a query letter, first five pages and a synopsis. So they'd be missing materials that the agent asked for. They'd be sending the wrong materials. I saw tons of people would just be like, here is my manuscript, and they'd attach a document. And when you're opening a lot of documents and getting a lot of emails, after a while, you're like, does this have a virus in it? And so you don't necessarily want to open those big documents. So not following the submission guidelines was a massive thing, because if you can't follow instructions, that probably means you're not going to be a great person to work with, generally speaking. So I think that was one of the biggest mistakes. A lot of people... Did, weren't starting their stories in the right place. And so that was something that I saw a ton. There were other things too, but I would say that not following submission guidelines was interestingly the biggest issue. Which is crazy because they're on the website or where it's there generally. Most agencies will say, this is what we want. And you're failing before you've even gone through a hurdle. It's yeah. kind of crazy that people do that. So that is a great tip for people is just read it. I get this as, as a podcaster. I get a lot of people pitching for the podcast who have nothing to do with what this channel is about. So yeah. I guess that's the same wherever. But I did want to ask you, because you you obviously, so you're working in this agency, you worked in different sides of publishing. How did what you learned there come over into your own writing life? That is a good question. I would say that when I was working at the agency, I was seeing a lot of issues and things arise or maybe people weren't starting their stories in the right place. So I got to see firsthand what authors struggled in and how they struggle to stand out to agents, to readers in general. Because you think about it, agents are readers and they're just a, a sort of a gatekeeper, if you will. And so I, for my own stories, I basically was like, all right, here are the mistakes that authors are making. I need to navigate those better. I need to address where to start my story in the most gripping way possible. Because if an agent's reading your first page, first five pages, you have paragraphs to, to catch them. I was like, okay, I can't meander. Got to get right to the thing. So I would say that really educated me. I would also say that I saw a lot of in certain genres, things sell really well. There are certain tropes, there are certain story types that sell really well in traditional publishing. And then I was noticing there were certain stories that didn't sell well. So steampunk didn't sell well in traditional publishing. And that's something that I love and that I write. And so the indie space became much more appealing for me because of that reason. But I would say that basically learning the insides of traditional publishing made the 
the brightest stars in self-publishing even seem even brighter, but there's like kind of pros and cons to each side, if that makes sense. And I think I'm really like this point, but I, I hope that answers your question. No, I think that's great. And it's so interesting that you uh, say that about steampunk. Uh, I, I haven't, I saw a lot of steampunk authors a few years back. It's not a genre I read anymore, but I was in New Zealand and New Zealand is a huge uh, steampunk uh, sort of lo- loving nation. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, they have a massive steampunk festival uh, oh, down awesome. there in the in the South Island. So yeah, you, you, anyway, whatever. Back on publishing, <laughs> people listening. But I am so I'm interested. So you you saw what was going on in indie, but you were very much embedded in traditional publishing. So what do you feel is the attitude towards independent authors, and have things changed? Yeah, I think that. When I started, it was in 2016, and essentially since 2016 to now, it's about it's 2020. I've seen the rise, for lack of a better word, and the legitimacy of self-publishing. So I would say more indie authors are publishing professional, high-quality books that, if you didn't know what to look for, like on the copyright page or whatever, they really look no different than traditionally published books. And so the books are edited, the covers are gorgeous, the stories are well written, and so forth. And I think things have changed a ton. Since that time, because I think there's also been the big rise in online book sales. More and more people are moving toward purchasing books online versus a brick and mortar bookstore, which is what traditional publishing relies heavily on. And then I think self-publishing has always been a valid path for authors, but I think there have been trailblazers like yourself who've proven that you can find success and financial freedom by going the indie route. Like traditional publishing is no longer the one and only option. And then there are certain genres, so getting back to steampunk, that and types of stories that perform better in the indie space than in traditional publishing, at least so far that I've found. And keep in mind that the, I'm sure you know this, but I guess for listeners, that the marketplace is constantly shifting. So what might be out of favor right now will come back in favor at some point. Like for a while after the Twilight Saga and the Vampire Diaries and all that sorts of stuff, vampires were massively out of favor for a few years and they're coming back now. So everything cycles in and cycles out. But Right now in 2020, steampunk is a little bit of a tough sell in traditional publishing. So that's one of the reasons why I thought my debut novel, The Cyborg Tinker, would do better in the indie space. But yeah, I just think that the indie space and traditional publishing, authors have so many options. So if you really assess your author goals, what you want to accomplish out of each book, and then where you think your skill set kind of meshes really well, you have a lot of great options you know, in front of you. And I wondered, what do you think in terms of personalities? Because I feel like some authors are better suited to being traditionally published and some authors might be better suited to being independent. You obviously have done a lot yourself and made very active choices. But given the people that you would have seen within the literary agency, what are some of the sort of personality aspects of people who thrive in traditional publishing or people who thrive in indie? I think that's a really interesting question, and there's tons of different reasons why someone might thrive in traditional publishing versus indie. I would say, the, I'll start with the misconception before we get into the things that might be a, a reason you might succeed in one path over another. But uh, the biggest misconception is that you do not have to do any marketing if you're going to be traditionally published. If you're going to be traditionally published, you have to market. You don't have to do as much marketing because if you're an indie, you are the one and only person marketing your book unless you hire a PR company. But if if you're in traditional publishing, of course, your publisher is going to do some stuff, but they are going to expect you to also pull your weight. So I think a lot of authors usually think traditional publishing is the best 
route for me because I don't want to market. Unfortunately, you have to do it either way. If you really could, you'd like the help and you don't want to do 100% of the marketing, that might be an appeal of traditional publishing. Another big appeal, or rather, I think an author who is wanting to be involved in every part of the process, maybe they're a little bit of a control freak, like I totally am, so it's totally cool if you are, if you're listening to this, but I would say if you are, you're probably going to struggle in traditional publishing because publishers find they'll say for everything. They might get your input during various parts of the process, they might ask you questions, but push comes to shove, you sold your rights to them, they get the final say. Unless you revert the contract and terminate that relationship, and, and that can be you know tough and a long process, but... So I would say if you are really wanting to be in creative control, Andy might be the best route for you. If you are pretty chill and you're like, I don't really care what the cover looks like. Sure, I'd like to be involved. Publisher knows best. Let's just let them handle it. Then maybe traditional publishing might be better for you. Then there's genre and age category considerations. What are you writing? If you are writing a dystopian story that in the flavor of Divergent, The Hunger Games, etc., those books are out of favor right now. So maybe the indie market is best for you. There's other examples, age categories and genres that tend to perform better in one avenue versus another. I think if you really want to get in bookstores, it is absolutely possible to do that as an indie. However, that's really part of the business model in traditional publishing. So if your goal is to, do, is to get your books into bookstores, maybe traditional publishing, but keep in mind there's a shelf life. So if your book does get into a bookstore, it's six to 12 months and then your book's out of there and the new books are coming in. So lots of things, pros and cons for each side to consider. I think that's the most important thing is that there are pros and cons and those are pros and cons both for the author as a person. They're also for the book that you're selling, for example, I and the project. So as you say, this steampunk novel for you might not be the right thing to pitch, but in the future you might decide there's a project you want to pitch and I think that's the way we need to look at it is think about it per book as well as across your career you can do lots of different things exactly exactly I am my steampunk is a series and theoretically should be working on book too creative muse can be a fickle lady I'm working on something totally unrelated but it's it's like a fantasy romance and those are performing well so I might query that book in the future so it's yeah I think it's really important to look at it as like a per book, per project basis, and then study the marketplace before you make your decision. So let's talk about YouTube because your iWriterly YouTube channel has nearly 70,000 subscribers. And that's, you know, super impressive. I've been part of YouTube channel for, whoa, like 11 years and I have less than half of that. <laughs> but I, and I have not, I go backwards and forwards on video. I'm, I struggle with it. I don't particularly enjoy it. I find it very tiring. And many people say if you're an author or you're aiming at readers, readers are reading. So why would they watch video and then pick up a book. So I want you to it's like tell us why do you focus on video and convinced authors that video might be a good idea? Yeah, just a quick thing. I've been watching your YouTube channel for years and I absolutely love it. Don't discount yourself. You're doing great. Uh, so <laughs> of course. And okay, enough of fangirling. Let me get to the question. So as far as like how YouTube sells books for me, before I get into the how it 
like you can sell books through YouTube or why to YouTube and how I've sold books specifically. I just want to like quick foundation for using YouTube for authors. I meant the author tube space, which is essentially a niche on YouTube where creators make videos about writing and publishing books. So this is different from BookTube, which is a niche where creators talk about the books they are reading. Those people aren't necessarily writers, but they can be. BookTubers make an audience of readers. Uh, so I think that is one big advantage of a platform like that. AuthorTube, on the other hand, is an audience of writers. So in my opinion, writers should also be readers, like avid readers to improve their craft. But So therefore, in a way, I've created an audience of readers and writers, which in my experience so far has translated into book sales. But more to come on that in a second. The difference, I think, is that writers are far more critical of writing than your regular reader. So that's often reflected in the reviews of books by author tubers. But Let's talk about how you can market your books on YouTube. The most obvious and, in my opinion, least effective way to market your books on YouTube are through things like book trailers. Other examples are meet the cast videos where you usually reveal character art or maybe even something like a writing update video. I have made some of these videos. They are not my bread and butter. They might move some copies of book, but not, uh, books, excuse me, but not nearly as much as you think. Instead, I focus on creating videos that are essentially content marketing, and that's what I highly recommend because that's what's worked for me. But I answer a question about writing or publishing for my audience, and then in the intro or outro of the video, I give a quick shout out to my books, my courses, my Patreon, or whatever else I have going on at that time. So basically, every single video a viewer watches, you're bringing them through the marketing funnel and introducing them to your products or services. And then the difference between like soft marketing, like soft content marketing and harder marketing like a book trailer is that you're bringing your, you're bringing your audience in by providing value. So typically, if you're just talking about your books, your YouTube viewers, they don't care. They've never heard of you before. So like an audience needs to first be given value before they're interested in the person who is giving them value. And then and I would say one downside of AuthorTube is that I did not make myself an audience of sci-fi or romance readers. I created an audience of readers of many different age categories and genres. In this niche, you're not guaranteed to have an audience that reads the age category and genre that you write. But at the same time, I've already hit a few Amazon bestselling lists for steampunk, one in the US and one in Canada, less than a month into my pre-order. We're a couple of months into my pre-order at this point. And I've remained on those lists ever since. And I also know other author tubers who make full-time income off of their books, YouTube and other revenue streams. So it has been proven, and not just by myself, but by others that YouTube does and can sell books. Mm. Yeah, it is. I love that you say book trailers don't work because I feel like that's when authors think of videos, they think, oh, I must do a book trailer. And I've yeah. done them on and off over the years and had people do them for me and I've never paid for them. I did do one myself like back in 2011, <laughs> which is it seems like a long time ago now. But I think you're right. And is the main reason there because at the end of the day, it's just one video and the success with a YouTube channel, it's got to be regular content. It's, if you put one video on a YouTube channel, like no, people might go once if you send some traffic there, but that's it, right? Exactly. So most YouTube experts recommend that you publish at least one video per week onto your YouTube channel. If you publish a one-off video, 
it probably is not going to be discovered in YouTube's algorithm because you have to feed the beast, right? You make one video and hopefully, like, you know, get people watching it. You make another video, more people watch that. And then the more people that click on your video, engage with it, you have a higher CTM. I always forget the acronym, but you have a cl higher click through rates and then maybe a longer watch time. Then all of a sudden, your YouTube channel takes off and then you get many more views, subscribers, etc. But you can't just do one book trailer ever and never go back to the channel because people are not going to find it. They're not going to watch it. And what about people just not wanting to put themselves out there? I've watched some of your videos. You present yourself very well. You're very engaging. Obviously, you, you're editing videos as well. But for people who might feel like they're, they might not be shy and or introvert, although many writers are, but equally, they might not want to put their face in front of the public. So what can you say about that sort of personality side and what it might, who it might suit? Yeah, I don't personally, this is just my opinion, I personally don't think there is a certain type of person that should or should not be making videos on the internet. I think everyone has something great that they can contribute online. And I think it is very scary to get in front of the camera. I think talking and putting your opinions out there does open you to a lot of criticism. And I have received a lot of criticism. But I have received lots of questions from authors and folks who want to start a YouTube channel. And they're like, but you, I don't know, they're like, oh, but I'm a middle-aged man and blah, 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 whatever the example is. And I'm like, so? Like, just go on and make videos. I don't know, take a shower and put a light on in front. You do, if you have a, like a light, a lamp, a ring light, whatever, put it on, use a microphone. And I think anyone can make videos if they want to. But if you hate being in front of the camera, then don't do it. If you hate it, I don't, I don't see the point of doing it. But I don't think that you have to be in front of the camera in order to make a you like make videos and be successful on YouTube. There's tons of people that have like maybe they do a slide presentation and they're just like a floating voice in the background talking people through how to. They're talking people through whatever. There's other people that have the animations that you'd have to financially be able to afford that or do it yourself uh, where there's pictures that appear on the screen. Maybe there's a talking cartoon. So you don't have to physically appear on the screen. But I would say as long as you provide value, that's really what matters. I, I don't think you're, a, I don't know. I just, it makes me sad when I hear people that they, they don't want to make videos because of their appearance or maybe because of their nervous. Whenever you start on YouTube, you start on camera, it's uncomfortable. You're going to be awkward at first, but then anything else, you build the muscle over time and you get better at it. Yeah, that is true. And I was really surprised when I looked at my demographics on YouTube, because my demographic, obviously, I'm mid 40s. My demographic is generally mid 40s or 40s, 50s and older like that. Really? Is the, yeah, that's the majority of my audience. As we discussed, you're younger than me. And so it's possible that your audience is younger. And I, I almost feel like my, my husband is in his late 40s and he listens to people of all different ages and all different cultures even and I think what's what is great about YouTube is you're right you can find a niche anywhere and there's no point in trying to be somebody else you just you, you have to be yourself and my husband watches these videos on coding and a lot of them are technical tutorials for example I have tutorials on my channel and I there are lots of different ways to do videos so I appreciate that you're you're talking about these different things that people can do because I feel like the the assumption is oh you have to 
have just the camera on your face, which is possibly the most scary thing ever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's definitely scary the first couple of videos. My first couple of videos, I, it was scary and it was it was very awkward. And it's going to be scary and awkward at first. So I, I do think there's like that learning curve. <laughs> so on that, you mentioned a ring light. I have a ring light here. I have a microphone. And then I personally use ScreenFlow to edit my videos. So I wondered, what's your technical setup? Yeah, absolutely. I have them in my YouTube video description. So um, I'm trying to remember what they are. I usually use a ring light for like the pre-recorded videos, not the live stream. So I use a, a ring light. I use the Canon EOS M50. And I for lights, I use a, a ring light. And I think it's a newer ring light, 18 inch, N-E-E-W-E-R. And then I use a lapel microphone. I know there's fancier setups and stuff, but that's just what I've used and I love it. I also have, gosh, what are they called? The sound panels on the wall that kind of absorb the sound so it's not bouncing back and forth. And then for live streams, I usually use, I use the same ring light. I use my computer's webcam. I tried out a ton of different webcams and none of them are as good as my computer's um, webcam that was built in. I have a MacBook Air, I think it's 2018. And then I have a little laptop stand. I also use a, a headset. It's a, a streaming headset for gaming. I forget what the brand is, but yeah, that's my setup. But I don't think that you have to have this fancy of a setup if you are just starting out. I think the only thing that you really need is a microphone when you first start out. You can use your smartphone. You can use a light for like natural lighting, sit in front of a window. The only thing you really need in the beginning is a good microphone because if people can't hear you, they're not going to want to watch your videos. That is a good point. And in fact, there are people listening to this on YouTube and we are audio only. So I thought I was going to end my YouTube channel. And then I went to podcast movement last year and they said the number of people listening to YouTube audio only is growing and growing. And so I continued doing my podcast as audio only. So I know it is a smaller group of people, but I think with the whatever the premium YouTube, which you can put it in your pocket and just listen. You don't actually have to watch the video. So do you have any thoughts on audio only for YouTube? Oh my gosh, I have so many feelings. So as a consumer, I love audio only YouTube videos. So I don't know, Joanna, how you consume your content, but like I have a, a three-year-old child and I'm a stay-at-home mom. So I'm with him all the time and everything I do with YouTube and my books is during nap time. So when I'm in the middle of doing stuff, I will be uh, listening to a YouTube audio only stuff. And that's how I consume a lot of my content. I rarely ever sit down and watch a YouTube video. I'm always listening to it. And I think with the rise in audiobooks, with the rise in podcasts, I think there is tons of people who just open YouTube and they listen to it and they don't necessarily watch it. But I think there's going to be a certain topics that's going to lend better to that. So maybe like an interview or like a how-to that doesn't involve some type of screen sharing. Because if you're teaching someone how to use some like video editing software, you have to sit down and watch that. But if it's like a how-to principles and thing, I think that's definitely growing on YouTube and it can perform really well. I would say that from what I have seen, when you're doing like YouTube videos, if you're doing like a podcast, uh, I have a lot of friends that do podcasts and then translate that podcast into a YouTube episode. It does seem to perform better if you have video to go along with it, but I don't think that's like a make or break for the success of the, that video or YouTube channel. 
Yeah, that's great you said that because I just listen on podcast apps. But of course, there's an audience who just like my husband who use YouTube so much. That's just the default app. And my sister-in-law also, she listens to audiobooks on YouTube. And I, I just, it's incredible. We have these assumptions around how people consume whatever they consume. And so often they're wrong. They're just based on what we do. So, yeah. <laughs> so I love that. So give us um, any more thoughts on what are authors doing wrong with YouTube or any tips to make it better? Absolutely. I think many authors post videos about their books or about themselves without thinking about creating content for an audience. In other words, they're making content for themselves rather than for an intended audience. So this could be things like day in the life vlogs, tags, book trailers, and so forth. As I had said before, if the audience doesn't know who you are, they probably are not going to care about your books, what your daily life looks like, looks like, and so forth. So I think that you need to provide a value to an audience first and foremost. Answer a question, entertain them, educate, inspire, whatever. And then only once you've provided value and built up an audience should you then start sharing more about yourself, in my opinion. Interesting. And and I tell you one of the things that I really notice about your videos and a lot of, let's face it, younger YouTubers than me is your thumbnail image. I know I have this wrong, but because I have literally thousands of videos at this point, I just cannot be bothered (laughs) updating it. But what are your um, thoughts on thumbnail images and how to do good ones? Absolutely. So I think one thing that a lot of people also get wrong when it comes to thumbnails is they pick the ones that are auto-generated by YouTube. And let's be frank, none of those are cute. No one looks good in those. It's always like you're halfway talking through something. And the thing with thumbnails is you have basically two chances to catch a reader's attention. And I think it's CTM, darn skippy. I can never remember the exact acronym, but on YouTube, it is a a very highly valued thing where essentially is if your thumbnail or your video appears in front of a a viewer on YouTube, if they click it, then that that goes towards that percentage. And the higher the percentage, the more YouTube's going to recommend your video. So it's really important that you have an awesome thumbnail and video title. So a lot of times your video title should be have a bunch of keywords, key phrases in it as far as discoverability, and then your thumbnail should have a more, in my opinion, personal appeal. So if your video is like how to write a book or things to avoid when starting your novel, and then your thumbnail can be like how, your, how to make your novel opening not suck. Okay, that's a really bad example, but hopefully you get the idea, like something like a human level that humans would be like, oh yeah, I'd like my novel opening not to suck. Let me click on that video. So I think there needs to be some type of text, some type, and it has to be easy to read and it has to be big. You can't do 20 words on there. Five words, if you can help it, as few words as possible. But And then you also maybe have a, your, a picture of yourself, your face. So then people start getting brand recognition, author recognition. They're like, oh, that person, I've watched her stuff before or his stuff before. And I would say a trend is that you might see on thumbnails is when people do that little white outline around themselves. I've seen that in a lot of things or maybe they cut out the background and they have bright colors and then you just see maybe a PNG file of their face, a bright background, and then bright text. Whatever it is, it needs to be easy to read and eye-catching. Yes, I definitely, I redid my thumbnails probably about three or four years ago now. And of course the trends change, as you say. 
and the sort of more regular YouTubers obviously now update things as they go and everything. So I, I think it's important to be clear that YouTube is its own ecosystem. And mm -hmm. if you want to do well on YouTube, you, you have to focus on it as your primary thing right because it can be all encompassing as well obviously you're writing and you've got your child and you've got your life but if you want to do well on YouTube you, you do have to focus on it absolutely I think YouTube is a marathon and not a sprint so if you want to be on YouTube you gotta be on YouTube post a video every single week show up even if you're exhausted even if you know that there's going you're going on vacation next week record two videos the week before have that ready and set to go or for three weeks or whatever it is like plan ahead so then that way you have to teach YouTube's algorithm to start picking up your video if you don't show up every week then it's gonna be very a lot harder to get discovered I was I think I was making videos for about two and a half years before Every single week I was posting videos for two and a half years before YouTube picked me up. And then my channel grew from 3,000 subscribers to 33,000 subscribers in one year. That was 2019. 2020, we, I'm already at 70,000 subscribers. So you have to show up every single week, make content, and then hope that, yeah, YouTube's algorithm picks you up. You have to learn the rules in order to be discovered. And that's no different with our books, of course, like we all understand the things we have to do with our metadata and our content. And uh, it's the same if you have a podcast. And I think this is just true of anything. And to build a brand, as you mentioned, brand recognition, it is not an overnight thing. It does take time. So what is great, though, about YouTube and like this podcast as well, is that you are doing content marketing that can sell books, but you can also bring in income in other ways. So when I was looking at your channel, I noticed you have ads, you have all kinds of different things. You have Patreon, you have lots of things. So tell us, how do your streams of income work for your business and your YouTube channel? Yes, absolutely. So I will just run through a couple of the different streams of income. And personally, I want as many passive streams of income as possible versus active streams. I have what's called AdSense on YouTube videos, and that's where companies will put advertisement at the, advertisements rather at the beginning, middle, or end of the video. It's usually the skippable or non-skippable ads that you see at the very beginning of the video. And that you make money on every single month. YouTube pays you directly. And it's once you get bigger, it's usually a much smaller portion of your income. And it takes a long time to make any money. I think when I had 2,000 subscribers, I probably made, I don't know, $100 a month, $200 a month. It's not much. But then once you get bigger, you make more and so forth. I also work directly with sponsors. So that's when you will hear in the video itself, I'll say something like, this video is sponsored by insert sponsor here. And then there's usually like a 30 second shout out about a sponsor and then an offer at the end of the video. And then I also have merchandise. I use a company called Teespring and I chose them for a couple of reasons. I really wanted to work with a print on demand company. I did not want to make the products myself. I didn't want to store them in my house. I didn't want to ship them. I hate going to the post office. So I wanted, <laughs> right. I hate it so much. I wanted someone else to do that for me. So I just have to create designs, upload them, to Teespring. I set up the individual products for sale on the website. So I have to make those listings and then I obviously market it. And then 
But I think one big appeal for Teespring is that they have a partnership with YouTube. So if you go to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash iWriterly, there's a bunch of tabs that will appear there. And one of them is called store. And so you'll see a bunch of individual listings from Teespring. And then if you click on one of my videos below each and every video, you'll see my listings there too. So it's like passive marketing for that. And you can go with Redbubble. You can go with other places that are for to do your merchandise. But I think that's one big appeal for Teespring for YouTubers. And they do have good quality stuff, I will say. But other streams of income, I have affiliate marketing. So if I mention a product or service that I use and love, I will usually include an affiliate link in the the YouTube video description or on my website. And then, of course, I uh, disclose that it's an affiliate link. I have Patreon. There's uh, six tiers with a bunch of different perks. I have noticed over time, like people love early access to my videos. And they also love the Discord server. And as like personally, I had never been on discord before creating my own server so i didn't get the appeal but i found that a lot of people love discord server the, the well, discord explain, server yeah but explain what that is yeah oh sorry absolutely so on patreon basically one of the things that you can hook up is this website called discord it's usually used for like gamers and stuff to talk amongst each other and play video games at the same time or at least historically that's what i found but you create it's like a facebook group but on Discord, and then you have a bunch of channels where you can talk about different things. It's also like Slack, if you guys have ever heard of Slack before. And there's different channels for different topics. So for mine, I have a bunch of different channels for writing. So one might be, I don't know, querying, writing books, critique partners, beta readers, whatever, and then people can talk under those various threads about whatever question that they have. Maybe they're looking for beta readers and they want to connect with someone there. It's basically like a little mini community of people that like iWriterly can go on this Discord server. And then obviously for whoever else makes a Discord server. So it's like a chat room, basically. Hope that answers that question. (laughs) No, I didn't know about that. And obviously I have a Patreon and uh, then I've got to ask you about the, do they just chat amongst themselves or are you going in there and managing that? Because that might take to manage. I don't even have a Facebook group because for the patrons or anything, because it's too much time. Like how much time does that discord stuff take? I 1000% agree with you, which is why I didn't include a Discord server in my Patreon tiers for the longest time because I was like, I barely have time to do what I'm currently doing. I don't have time to get on a server every single day and chat with people. But I would say patrons love it when you're on there, but they are going to talk amongst themselves. So you have to nominate moderators so you maybe could hire them or maybe your diehard fans in the group that have proven themselves to be good humans. You can ask them if they want to be a moderator. And then if there's any kind of bad language, people are being abusive towards other people online, the moderators would kick them out of the server, that sort of a thing. But no, you don't have to be on there. People love it when you do. I would say I do monthly writing sprints in my group. And that is when I get to chat with everyone and we do, we do writing stuff together. But you do not have to be on there every day. Well, then I'm going to think about that. It's really interesting. So let's, um, coming back on your streams of income, what else yes. did you have? Yeah. Yes. Besides the other ones I'd mentioned, uh, I have a thing called Kofi or Kofi. I have no idea how to say that one, but this, <laughs> right? You're like, just read it. I don't know. This is where people have the option to buy you a cup of coffee or several cups of coffee if they're feeling generous. And this is usually for folks who might love your content, but they aren't able or interested in a monthly model to support you like Patreon because at Patreon, it's like a monthly payment sort of a thing. I also have courses. I'm new to this one. I've recently launched a Skillshare 
course about how to write a, a query letter that hooks a literary agent. I have not been pleased with Skillshare, the model and platform so far, but what, so once you post a class, they have it indefinitely. So that's a downside, I think, of Skillshare. I'll probably go with another service for hosting courses in the future, but I think courses are a great stream of passive income especially if your audience keeps asking you the same questions over and over again. And then you have that way to be like, here, I'm here, I'm answering your question. And then once my book comes out in November 2020, I will have the revenue streams from the ebook, the paperback, the hardcover, and the audiobook. I haven't done a ton of paid in-person speaking gigs. I had some lined up for summer of 2020, but with the pandemic, that's not going to be happening. I also used to do freelance editing as well, but over time, I found myself needing to transition from active streams of income to more passive streams of income. So I did step back from doing that. That is great. I thought I was the queen of multiple streams of income, but you... You are doing incredibly well with these things. And just to encourage you and people listening, I started setting up passive streams of income back in 2008 when I started my blog. Like the, I, from day one, included things like Amazon affiliate links. And I, over the years, I've just added more and, and everything. And it, it over time, as it grows, it's like that snowball. Like it can be, like I think my first affiliate payment was about 20 cents or something or a dollar. And you think, why am I bothering? And then over time, as your audience grows, they grow. So I'm just thrilled with what you're doing. It's fantastic. Thank you. I'm super curious if I'm allowed to ask a question. Mm. What are some streams of income that you would recommend for all authors? I think you're doing exactly what I've done. I think the affiliate model is something that people forget a lot. Anything where you can, if you link to a book even, and I know it's cents, it really is just a few cents linking a book with an Amazon link or using a Kobo has an affiliate. So does mm -hmm. Apple, um, Google, Google also has affiliate links. So, so all like all of my book books on my sites are linked through affiliate links so that basically there's just an extra few cents on every single click. And then as you've done, like I noticed you uh, pro writing aids sponsored one of your shows and I love that software or Scrivener software, other software that you can get that you actively use and love. And if you're building great content like you are, then you can generally get affiliate relationships with things. And obviously over time you um, build up relationships and you can get better opportunities but you have to start somewhere and so that's all I've done basically is if, if I like something the first thing I go and do is see if I can apply for an affiliate link <laughs> yeah it's so smart because I, I personally am a believer that affiliate links should be products that you love and use not just any product to make money oh, yeah no they um, have to be they have yeah. to be something you love and use and companies that you love and the sponsors on this podcast they're all companies I use and work with and have done for years so I think it's really important to be ethical and affiliate marketing has a bad name in some niches but if you're authentic about it as you are and I am then it, it's a great stream of income so well then my question back to you really is how did you shift your mindset or did you did were you just always this way in that you're a creative and an artist, but you're also a businesswoman? 
Yeah, I think, so I started writing books 10 years ago, and I remember feeling like when I first started that I was just shouting into the void, that there was just a lot of things going on, and it's really hard to stand out if you're just an author. And so I remember at some point being like, I need to do something else in order to make a brand or make a name for myself, and I stumbled into YouTube. It wasn't an on-purpose thing, but I think, I don't know, I just found that in order to I wanted to help people. That was always one of my biggest goals and motivators was I wanted to help and to educate people. But I also wanted to obviously make a home for myself on the internet. So I think if you're like if you're an author and you want to find a way to stand out, I think branding is really important. I think you need to make a home base for yourself on the internet. Yes, you should have a website, but maybe it needs to be something else too in order to grow your platform essentially. Mm. Yeah, I think that's what you recognize there is if I just have a book, then how do I stand out in that way? And that is the author platform thing is the perennial question, isn't it? It's what can I do and how can I reach people? A lot of people now are using more paid ads, I think, to stand out specifically with fiction, I think. How are you going to incorporate the more well, just book marketing alongside everything else you do? I need to get better at it is the short answer of it. I think so far I've relied pretty heavily on my content marketing and I do have a sizable audience at this point, but at the same time, I I do want to more actively use things like Amazon ads, Instagram ads, uh, BookBub newsletters, and target readers in my age category and genre. So I do want to use those sorts of things in the future. I think Personally, I've debated on whether it's worth it at this point. I have one book coming out, and I've heard that a lot of time the advertising works best when you have a backlist. So I'm like, do I just write a bunch of books and then pursue some of those things? So it's something that I want to get better at. But I think advertising or reaching out to platforms where they have an audience of built-in readers. So reaching out to booktubers that have an audience, like your target audience. So for me, it's like sci-fi readers, uh, space opera readers, steampunk readers. So reaching out to them, asking if I can guest speak, I think that's something that I I need to work on going forward. Oh, that's great. And you've got such a great channel that uh, you have a platform to do that from. Like this show, if if I had been pitched by someone whose first book was just coming out and that was the only thing about them, then clearly I'm I don't I'm not going to talk to that person yeah yeah it's <laughs> a tough truth that's, that's everyone I mean that really I get pictures about that every single day my new book is coming out and it's like the rest of us <laughs> that's not newsworthy but it's your ability on YouTube that I wanted to talk to you about and you've given me some great ideas so I'm <laughs> thrilled about that so tell people where can they find you and your books and your YouTube channel and everything you do online Yes, absolutely. So for social media, I am most active on YouTube at iWriterly. I also am active on Instagram at Meg underscore Latour, and then on Twitter at Meg Latour. I'm also on Patreon over at patreon.com backslash iWriterly. And then for more information about my newsletters, books, and other things I'm up to, you can visit iWriterly.com. Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, Meg. That was great. Yes, thank you so much for having me. This has been an absolute pleasure. So I hope you found the interview with Meg useful today, especially if you're considering making videos to support your author career. And I certainly love hearing about some new forms of income. And Meg's book, The Cyborg Tinkerer, a steampunk fairy tale mashup, is out this week.
So next week, I'm talking to Holly Wharton about cultivating a successful creative business mindset. Holly's been on my books and travel show talking about long distance walking, which inspired my recent six day pilgrimage. And she combines her love of nature with business principles. So that is coming up next week. Happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.